Today's podcast is sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving entrepreneurs like myself the resources once reserved just for big business. To get a free 14-day trial and full access to Shopify's entire suite of features, go to shopify.com gold. Podcast is also sponsored by True Niagen. True Niagen helps fuel your cells' energy engines, maintains cellular metabolism, and even supports heart health in combination with a healthy lifestyle. Save 10% on your first purchase at trueniagen.com gold using the promo code PETER. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Dow Jones settled the day up just under 74 points, but was good enough for a new all-time record high. In fact, all of the major markets were positive on the week, although the Dow was the only index that managed to finish positive on the day. Though the S&P 500, which was slightly lower on the day, did manage a new all-time record high. So obviously not a record high close, but an intraday record high for the S&P. Of course, not all the stocks were enjoying a positive day or a positive week. We saw some major blow-ups in the last couple of days. I wanted to call attention to a couple of them. IBM, which is the quintessential stock that represents earnings engineering and continuously manages to disappoint investors. Once again, it did not disappoint in that it lived up to its reputation of disappointing and announced poor earnings that did not meet investor expectations. The stock was down about 10% yesterday, so a major drag on the big indexes. In fact, IBM was actually down a little bit more today. IBM wasn't the only tech stock disappointing. Look at Intel. Intel came out with bad earnings after the close yesterday, The stock was down about 12% on the day, but it wasn't the biggest loser. That honor goes to Snapchat, which also reported disappointing earnings yesterday after the close. And today, shares of Snapchat tumbled. We closed down about 27% on the day. That's pretty much near the lows of the day, although the stock was hammered right out of the gate down about 25% and never really recovered. Although it wasn't all bad news. I mean, some stocks managed to make new all-time record highs. Look at Netflix. Netflix closed on a new high, made a new high. Same thing with Tesla. It reported earnings yesterday. Kind of a mixed bag, but still Tesla managed to make a new high. Tesla is really the ultimate meme stock. In fact, it was a meme stock before anybody even coined the term meme stock. You really have a cultish type following in Tesla, clearly a very expensive stock. There were a lot of notorious short sellers who lost their shirts, literally, or their shorts, shorting Tesla based on valuation. A lot of those shorts have covered. I'm really not sure 
how many are left. I mean, I know there's some brave souls out there or fools, depending on how you want to look at it, who are short Tesla, despite the fact that it continues to move higher. Of course, eventually the shorts will probably be right. The question is, how long are they going to have to hold on before the market ultimately vindicates them? But Netflix was the only FANG stock to have a positive day. Netflix, of course, being the N. But take a look at Facebook. That stock got a black eye today, down just over 5%. Amazon, the A, down just under 3%. And Alphabet being the G, because Alphabet is the corporate name for Google, that stock down just over 3%. Now, some people put a fifth letter in FANG. They spell FANG with two A's. The second A being Apple. Apple didn't have quite as rotten a day as the rest of the fangs, but it was still down about six-tenths of 1%. But there's two stocks in particular that I really want to talk about today. Both of them really began trading yesterday, and they IPO'd through a vehicle called a SPAC. And I haven't really talked a lot about SPACs on the podcast, but given what just happened with two of these SPACs, I think this is a good opportunity to discuss it. So if you don't know what SPAC stands for, the anachronism is Special Purpose Acquisition Company. And what SPACs are all about is managers that have maybe good track records or a good following, they decide to launch a company and they raise a bunch of money. And the purpose of this new company is to find another company to buy or to merge into the SPAC, right? The SPAC itself doesn't do anything. It's just a pile of cash. And what it's hoping to do is acquire another company, and now the SPAC has a business. Now, of course, when people are buying a SPAC, I mean, really, you're buying a pig in a poke. You have no idea what the SPAC is ultimately going to acquire. Now, of course, the shareholders do have the option when the management of the SPAC, when they present the planned acquisition, shareholders can vote it down, right? So they don't necessarily buy a pig and a poke, but you may not approve of the acquisition, but the majority of shareholders do, and that's what you're stuck with, unless, of course, you sell your shares, which you can do. But the fact that these SPACs are so popular, so many people are pouring money into these vehicles without even knowing what they're going to buy. They just want to get in on it, whatever it is. This is all part of the speculative fervor that has been created by the Federal Reserve and other central banks with artificially low interest rates. There's all this money looking around, and so it's filling up the coffers of these SPACs. So this is another sign of a bubble. And I think a lot of people that are taking this route as opposed to a traditional IPO, right? Again, this shows there's a lot more froth in the market. A lot of people want to bypass the IPO structure and kind of just go direct. And that's really what these SPACs are doing because they're not relying on a Wall Street investment bank to bring a company public. They're just already public because the SPAC is already listed. And then all of a sudden, the new entity is merged in and voila, you've got this new public company. So one of them that debuted yesterday was the SPAC that acquired WeWork. Now, if you don't remember WeWork, that is the company that collapsed very famously. They were going to try to go public. And when their financials were disclosed, potential investors balked at the valuation, the whole deal imploded because nobody wanted to buy. And I talked a lot 
about the problems for this company before a lot of people even realize it. I mean, to me, this was an obvious bubble in this company based on their ridiculous business model. But that business model was made even more ridiculous by COVID. Because if you don't know what WeWork does is they go out and they rent office space, long-term rents. They rent a whole bunch of space and then they sublease small parts of it to other tenants. And the tenants who are subleasing generally have short-term leases. Sometimes it's just month to month. Maybe it's a six-month or a year lease. But meanwhile, their master leases could go five years, 10 years, or more. So they went out and they leased up all this prime office space in all these major cities. And even before COVID, the whole business model was imploding. But think about the WeWork situation now where you've got COVID and now so many companies have discovered, whether by choice or by circumstance, that a lot of their workers are going to work from home. You have a lot of people that are working from home that a couple of years ago, no one would have ever considered that they were going to work from home, certainly not the employers. But now all of a sudden, a lot of people who were not even potentially going to work from home are now working from home. And so the employers clearly don't need as much office space in this post-COVID world as they did when WeWork was acquiring all these long-term leases. So whatever problems they had pre-COVID, they've got them in spades post-COVID. Now, the valuation attributed to this SPAC is still a fraction of the valuation that the stock was supposed to go public for, and certainly a fraction of what investors actually paid. Because if you look at the last private round of financing, and I don't remember the crazy valuation that was attributed to the company, but the current valuation of the SPAC is a fraction of that pie-in-the-sky valuation. But given how much more the office market has deteriorated, especially in these big cities where WeWork has all of these leases, I would think it's even less attractive now. Yet despite that, investors came piling in to this SPAC. The symbol is we, pretty easy to remember, we for WeWork, which is now the name of the SPAC, but nobody really knew what the SPAC was going to buy until yesterday. And if you look at what happened to it, so the day before yesterday, the stock closed at $10.38. Then they announced the deal, and the next day it gaps up to $11.28, And today it closed at $13.02, but it actually traded as high as $14.97. So really better than a 40% move in the two days since the SPAC announced that they were acquiring WeWork. Now you would think that you put money in a SPAC and what they end up doing is buying WeWork, you would just run for the hills. I mean, why the hell would you want WeWork? That would be my impression. Like, oh my God, this is not what I signed up for. I mean, why would I want to buy that turkey? But instead, even though you found out that your pig in a poke was a pig, people still bought it anyway, right? They put some lipstick on it and they bought it. And again, this just shows you how crazy the speculative fervor is in the economy that just coming up with the name of a company that everybody knows, even if it's known for something bad, Just the fact that there's some sexiness to the story, people were willing to buy it. Discover the possibilities made possible by Shopify. Shopify unlocks the opportunity for your business to get exposed to more people 
every day. In fact, every 28 seconds, an entrepreneur like you makes their first sale on Shopify. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving you the resources once reserved just for the biggest businesses. And it's customized just for your business with a great looking online store that brings your ideas to life and gives you the tools to both manage and drive your sales. Making your idea real opens endless possibilities. Believe me, my podcast started out real small. In fact, originally it was on once a week for an hour on short rate radio. I now have a far larger audience. So when you start something small, you never really know initially just how big it's going to get. And for a lot of businesses, their path to success will be a lot easier if they partner with Shopify. In fact, I love the way Shopify makes it much easier for anyone to successfully run their own small business. Shopify powers over 1.7 million entrepreneurs from their first sale to full scale. And every 28 seconds, another small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify. So get started now building and customizing your own online store with no coding or design experience required. Access powerful tools to help you find customers, drive sales, and manage your operation day to day. Gain knowledge, confidence, and resources with the help you need to succeed. Plus, with 24-7 support, you're never alone. More than just a store, Shopify grows with you. Just go to shopify.com gold, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com gold right now. But what we saw in WeWork pales in comparison to what we saw in another SPAC, Digital World Acquisition Company. Now, this SPAC first started trading at the end of September. September 30th was the first day of trading, and it opened up with a lot of excitement because it actually ran up as high as $17.33, opened at 16 So there was a lot of excitement, but it quickly sold off. It closed at $9.95 that day, and it pretty much stayed around the high 90s, $9.95 to 10 bucks all the way until Wednesday. And then Thursday, the company announces that it is going to be merging with Trump Media. And Trump Media, of course, owned by former President Donald Trump, is going to be launching, and they're in the process now of launching a streaming service, video, social media, supposedly being targeted at conservatives. It's going to be non-woke, right? Not politically correct news, entertainment. I think their first app, The Truth, I don't know if it's going to be some type of Twitter, Facebook, a combination of both. But first of all, it is the president's way of right getting back at Twitter for banning him or Facebook for banning him. And I think this makes sense for Donald Trump as a businessman to try to capitalize on his brand, on his popularity within the Republican Party, within conservatives, even though Donald Trump is not conservative. At least he didn't govern as a conservative. He's a populist. But of course, a lot of conservatives don't actually understand that. But this social media network is going to be focusing on the truth, right? That's obviously Truth Social is the name. Not that Donald Trump himself was a big fan of the truth because as president, he lied all the time. I was one of the few people on the right that pointed out 
all of the president's lies. But I do support the former president in his effort. I mean, I think the world does need uh, more conservative outlets or certainly social media outlets that won't cave in to the pressures from the woke mob to silence the voices of the people who the woke mob wants to cancel. So I applaud uh, the president in his efforts and I wish him every success. The question is, what is this new company actually worth? Because I have no idea, nor do any of the people who are buying it, but they're buying it anyway. So if you look at what happened to this stock, so they announced the merger yesterday and the stock immediately jumps from the 996 where it closed, opens at 1273. So a big jump, almost 30% right out of the gate. But all you had to do is buy the stock. I, I didn't even know about the stock until it was in the news because it was up so much. I wasn't really paying attention. But the stock then rose intraday up to $52 a share. So almost a four-fold increase intraday in the price of that stock. Now it closed at 45.50, big gain, and then this morning it opened at $118.78. And by the way, there were several times during yesterday's trading where there was so much buying they had to halt the stock and then reopen it. Same thing happened today, fast market in these shares. The stock got as high as $175 intraday. You could have bought it yesterday after the news at 1273, more than a 10x return at today's high. And of course, the people who had the inside information, right, obviously somebody knew on Wednesday that this was going to happen. Well, they were able to buy the stock below 10 bucks and potentially had the opportunity to sell it today at 175. Now we closed well off the highs, $94.20, but still better than an 80% gain on the day. And the people who are buying this stock, they have no idea what they're actually buying because there isn't actually any programming yet. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. There's no content out there that you actually have any knowledge of. You just kind of know back of the envelope, right, what their plan is. But who cares? Everybody is piling into this stock. Again, this is what happens in speculative manias. But if you think about it, the company is going to have a lot of challenges. Even though there is a potential big market out there, right, and you've got a great name, Donald Trump, right, so it could do well. But the question is, how are they going to make money? Because most of these social media companies, they don't charge people. The service is free. They make money from advertisers. Well, Trump is going to be very toxic in that world because there's going to be a lot of advertisers that are going to be afraid of advertising on his social media network because they're going to be afraid of a backlash. They're going to be afraid of a boycott because if Trump is not going to censor free speech, which again is a plus, then there's going to be all this hate speech. 
Now, some of it isn't actually hate speech. In fact, most of it isn't hate speech, but people pretend that it is. And if the right people pretend that it's hate speech, well, then you better pretend you're offended too. Otherwise, you're going to get canceled. And so a lot of these advertisers are not going to want to be associated with a media outlet that is allowing this type of uncensored speech on their platform. So that is going to dramatically limit the potential advertisers that might generate income for this venture. Now, of course, you can say, well, they'll just charge the consumer, right? Screw the advertisers. We're going to be a model where we're going to actually make the users the customers. And maybe, but who knows if that's going to work because these days with all this inflation and the price of everything going up, I'm not sure how many people are willing to pay extra money to be able to tweet or Facebook or whatever they're going to be doing on this new social network when there are so many other social networks out there where they can do all this for free. Are they really going to pay up to use this service? So we'll see, but who knows? Then the other problem they're going to have is distribution. Because you're probably going to have Apple, iTunes, and Google, and all these other platforms where you go to download apps. A lot of these companies may not want to put this social media app on their platform, again, for fear of backlash, boycotts, because again, they're not going to censor the truth. And if the truth is offensive to somebody, well, then they may not be willing to put that on their platform because they're worried about the backlash to themselves. And of course, these big media outlets, they all want to appear socially correct, right? Politically correct. They're all woke. They want to show that they care and they're on the right side of all these social issues. And so if the right side of these social issues means keeping the Truth Social app off of your platform, well, that's what they may do. Now, maybe they're going to file lawsuits. I have no idea. But it's clear to me that it is not a slam dunk that this venture is going to be a success. I mean, after all, Donald Trump doesn't bat a thousand. I mean, think about Trump stakes or some of the other business ventures that he had that flamed out. So who knows? But nobody really cares. They're just buying it anyway because this is a bubble and it sounds sexy and everybody wanted in on the action. True Niagen helps fuel your cell's energy engines. It maintains cellular metabolism and even supports a healthy heart in combination with a healthy lifestyle. With 13 published human clinical studies and backed by Nobel Prize winners, True Niagen is a supplement that is clinically proven to boost NAD levels, an essential coenzyme required for cellular energy and repair. And now you can save 10% on your first purchase at trueniagen.com slash Peter using the promo code Peter. That's trueniagen, T-R-U-N-I-A-G-E-N.com slash Peter. Use the promo code Peter to save 10% on your first purchase. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Now, while everybody was following these crazy stories, as well as the Bitcoin story, which I'm going to save Bitcoin for last and the Bitcoin ETF. So I'm going to get back to that. But let me talk about something that has no sex appeal whatsoever. And that's gold. Because while everybody was talking about Bitcoin or all of these SPACs that came public or what was going on, gold was quietly moving up all week. In fact, at one point this morning, 
Gold was over 1,800 for the first time in a while. I think we got up around 1,815-ish, up better than $30 on the day. Now, it didn't hold 1,800. It didn't hold that big gain. There was a sharp sell-off intraday. I would expect that, right? I mean, climbing a wall or worry, you still get a gold rally. You got plenty of people who want to sell into it. They still don't get what's going on. But gold still managed to close up about $10, 1794-ish. Positive week up about 25 bucks. Silver, again, well off the highs, but still with a respectable 16 cent gain, up a dollar on the week. That's a big move for silver. You rarely get a week where silver prices are up a dollar and it did it with no fanfare. Nobody's really talking about silver. About $24.30 an ounce. You know, on the podcast, the day that we got the first positive reaction in the gold market to worse than expected inflation news, meaning higher inflation, I said on this podcast, this could be a very significant development because up until that point, Every time we got worse than expected inflation news, which was pretty much every time we got inflation news, people were selling gold because they expect the Fed to fight this inflation off, which of course is a crazy assumption to make because it's not going to happen. And even if the Fed tried to fight inflation, inflation would whip its ass, which is why the Fed is not going to fight it. So inflation is just going to win by default. But that last time we got the hotter than expected inflation news, gold immediately sold off. I mean, just like you would expect, the algorithms saw that number, hit the sell button, boom, gold dumped like 20 bucks, whatever it was. But then a funny thing happened. Buyers showed up and we ended up closing substantially higher on the day. And I said on the podcast I did, I think later that day, that could be the bottom. If gold is now going to be going up on bad inflation news, well, it's going much higher because the inflation news is going to keep getting worse. And in fact, that is exactly what has been happening. We had plenty of inflation news this week. One of them is the price of oil, crude oil, closing at yet another multi-year high. The first time during this move that we've closed above 84 I think we're at 84.19. I'm not sure if that's the final settlement price. I'm looking at my screen right now, but that's up about a buck 70 on the day, pretty much the high of the day. I mean, oil was strong pretty much all day. I think they tried to sell it off once or twice, but the buyers came in. This is a relentless bull market that has a long, long way to go. And again, it's not just oil prices that are going up. It's all commodities in general are going up. Oil may be leading the way, and it's got a long way to go. In fact, take a look at the rig count numbers that came out today. Baker Hughes comes out with these numbers every week, so you can see what's going on in North America. Now, normally, when oil prices are really going up, you would expect the rig count to go up because the oil industry, they want to drill more oil when the price is up, right? Because you can make more money. You want to sell more oil when it's expensive, right? That's why an old saying is the best cure for high prices is high prices. Because when the price of oil goes up, well, more oil producers want to bring oil to market to take advantage of the high price. So they got to drill more oil. And so now the supply increases and eventually that brings down the price. We'll take a look at the North American rig count In the last week, it went down from 711 operating rigs down to 706. So instead of producing more oil in the face of higher prices, 
we're producing less. Look at U.S. as opposed to Canada or the Gulf of Mexico. U.S. went from 543 down to 542. Not a big drop, but it was a drop. Why didn't we add? Why didn't U.S. oil companies put some more rigs in operation? They didn't do it. Normally, you would see that. Gulf of Mexico actually went up from 12 to 3, but obviously not that much going on in the Gulf. And probably some of that had to do with stuff coming back on stream that might have been taken off based on some weather. But we saw a big drop in Canada from 168 down to 164. So four rigs not in operation. But again, what's so significant here is not the fact that the rig count went down. It's the fact that the rig count didn't go up. So what that means is you're not getting the increasing supply to go along with the increasing price. That means price increases will continue and maybe even accelerate. Also, we had more companies announcing inflation, price increases. Unilever, one of the ones in the news. Now, Unilever happens to be a stock that we own in our managed accounts. We own some of these consumer product companies in there. And one of the reasons I think these consumer product companies are a particular good buy, and again, I'm not recommending Unilever on this podcast. I never recommend stocks on the podcast. That's part of the FINRA rules. Remember, I mentioned on the last podcast that I'm required to be a member of FINRA if I want to be a broker in this country. Now, of course, FINRA says, hey, we're a private company. Yeah, they're private, except the government forces me to be a member. So if the government requires me to do something, it's not really private, right? It's really quasi-government. And in many cases, it's worse than the government because companies like this, being a private company, they can do a lot of things that would be unconstitutional if the government did it, but they do it anyway. But to me, it is unconstitutional because I don't have a choice. If I want to be a stockbroker, I have to be a member of this organization and I have to do what they tell me. Even if if the government told me to do it, it would be unconstitutional. I still got to listen to FINRA. I can't say it's unconstitutional because they could just say, well, we're not the government. You, you could quit. You don't have to be a member of FINRA. Well, that's true, but then I can't be a stockbroker. And the government should never put you in a position where they force you to do something that the Constitution wouldn't allow them to do, but you have to do it under the guise of, well, they forced you to join this private organization. And now the private organization makes you do something that the government would never be able to do directly. I still think the whole scheme is unconstitutional, but I'm getting sidetracked. I want to get back to my point. Although, so the reason I I don't give recommendations is because I don't know individually who is listening to this podcast. So I have no idea if the particular stock is suitable for everybody who happens to be listening to my podcast. So I'm just talking about this to just discuss what's going on. And so this is not a recommendation. If you actually want a recommendation, call up your Pacific Capital, talk to one of the brokers, then they can assess your suitability and make an individual recommendation that's tailored to your specific needs and risk tolerance and all that. But the point I'm making on these consumer companies is they've been getting whacked because their profits have been under pressure by rising costs, right? Because inflation is pushing up the costs. And a lot of these companies have been reluctant to pass that on to their consumer. And I've been talking about that because early on, there was so much talk about inflation being transitory. A lot of companies didn't want to raise prices, only to roll them back later. 
They figured, okay, if it's just going to be a few months, the Fed is right. We'll just stick it out and maybe our margins will suffer a little bit, but then we're going to get through this transitory period. Prices will come back down. Our margins will improve and we'll just ride this thing out. And so they took the price increases out of their own margins, right? They basically took the bullet for their customer and the customer got away. They just bought stuff cheaper. But now, because the inflation has proven not to be transitory, in fact, it's getting much worse and the signs are we're just getting started, I think these consumer companies are good deals because I think they're going to end up raising prices significantly and they're going to get away with it, especially if they're selling the products that consumers actually need, right? Consumers aren't going to stop using a lot of these products just because the price goes up, especially if everybody's selling similar competitive products are also raising their prices. The companies that I think are really going to suffer are the ones that don't have the pricing power. And I think Wall Street and other investors have misunderstood the pricing power that a lot of these companies are going to have. And I believe they're going to start passing on their costs. And that is exactly what Unilever indicate. Of course, they're a British company, but their products are sold all around the world. A lot of the products sold here in the United States. You know, what are the more popular ones? Ben & Jerry's ice cream. They acquired them at some point ago, but they have a lot of popular household brands that Americans use. They're all going to be getting more expensive, but it's not just Unilever that's raising prices. All the big consumer companies are doing the same thing, which makes it so much easier because initially one company is afraid of raising prices because they think their competitors won't and they're going to lose market share. They're all doing it, right? They're all throwing in the towel and raising prices. And so they're going much higher. And the Unilever in their news announcement, they said that. They said, we're raising prices again and we're basically warning everybody that we're going to raise prices even more next year. And they're saying that they think next year's price increases are going to be even higher than last year's. And that's what I have been saying all along for precisely this reason. I said companies were holding out. They weren't hitting the customer with higher prices because they were hoping it was transitory. But by the end of the year, they would realize that was a mistake. And next year was going to be come to Jesus time when all of a sudden the consumers are going to have to be hit with reality because all these companies that have been withholding raising prices are now going to do it. And that was one of the reasons that I was sure that inflation in 2022 was going to be even worse than 2021, right? And the other reason is going to be owner's equivalent rent ultimately catching up with real rent. I mean, we can't keep pretending that rents aren't going up indefinitely. At some point, owner's equivalent rent is going to have to rise. And that's going to show up in a big way in the CPI, given how heavy the weighting. And, you know, a lot of people thought there was some relief from used car prices because in the last CPI number, used car prices went down. Well, now they're at an all-time record high. They just spiked up again. So that temporary relief is over. And so that's going to make a future CPI number that much worse when you had this huge jump in used car prices. But again, as news on inflation keeps getting worse... News on the economy is also getting worse. Stagflation. The evidence of stagflation continues to pile up. In fact, when I recorded my podcast on Tuesday, I didn't even check the Atlanta Fed GDP Now website. And had I done so, I would have noticed the latest 
sharp downward revision in the forecast for Q3 GDP. Now, the forecast earlier this year, in fact, over the summer, June, July, the Atlanta Fed was looking for, I think, seven and a quarter GDP growth for the third quarter, which just ended, right? Well, now they are looking for 0.5. They just slashed it from 1.2, which was a big decline from where it was before. They went from 1.2 all the way down to 0.5. That's barely growth. Because remember, these are annualized numbers, right? When they say GDP growth is 0.5, they take the growth in the quarter and they multiply it by four. So if you divide 0.5 by 4, you barely get a number above 0.1. That is a crawl. I mean, we're skirting on the edge of a contraction of the economy. So even as prices continue to go up, right, the economic activity, the GDP, continues to contract. And that just blows away the argument that I talked about on the last podcast where the Biden administration is blaming the inflation on the strong economy. When the reality shows that inflation is getting worse as the economy is losing strength. So how can it be a strong economy that's causing inflation when the strong economy has weakened substantially and inflation has gotten worse? And in fact, if the economy has barely got its neck above water, if we're barely above the flat line and almost in contraction, by what standard does that qualify this is a strong economy? What's strong is inflation. The economy is weak. And again, we got more data. Look at the manufacturing data in particular. We got the Philly Fed manufacturing number came out during the week. Another miss and a big drop from where it was the prior month, which was 30.7. They were looking for 25 in October. Instead, we got 23.8. I mean, it could have been worse, but again, less than expected. More bad news on manufacturing in today's PMI. We did get better than expected numbers on the service index. Right, service index was up 58.2. They were looking for 55.2, but manufacturing was supposed to be 60.7, and instead it was 59.2. That was below the lowest end of the consensus range. Now, the overall PMI composite index was up over the prior month because of the gain in services, but What's significant is the weakness in manufacturing because that means that our trade deficits just keep getting bigger, which means these record pileups of these container ships queued up off the coast of California is going to continue to be a bigger and bigger problem as the U.S. continues to rely more on foreigners to make the stuff that we can't produce because our economy is so weak. And speaking of weak economies, we got the leading economic indicators. I think they came out yesterday. And the consensus was for 0.5. That was going to be where the indicator showed up. We got 0.9 in August. So we got a strong number in August. And so people were looking for that number to soften a bit, come out at a still respectable 0.5. Well, the 0.9 from August, that got notched down to 0.8. So not quite as good as we were originally told. But the September number came in at just 0.2. Pretty anemic for leading economic indicators, if we have such a booming economy that this is the reason that we've got the high-class problem of inflation, why are the leading economic indicators so bleak? I mean, 0.2 is pretty low when it comes to economic indicators. It doesn't indicate a strong economy. It indicates a weak economy. So again, all of the data continues to support 
the stagflation thesis, despite the fact that so many people in the mainstream of financial media or certainly in government at the Federal Reserve continue to claim that the risk of stagflation is minimal because everybody keeps pointing to that supposed threat only to say that we don't have to worry about it. The people who are talking about stagflation are wrong, that we've got absolutely no evidence whatsoever that we're experiencing anything like stagflation, even though all of the evidence confirms that that's exactly what we're experiencing. And again, remember, a lot of the people in power who were saying this are the same people who said there was no inflation problem, right? Well, look how wrong they turned out to be there. Inflation is a big problem. Everybody, of course, is trying to cover it up. Even the stores... I was laughing. I was reading this article on Zero Hedge. And on Zero Hedge, they had all these photographs of stores that were trying to create the false impression that they actually had products to put on the shelves because they didn't want to scare the consumers with empty shelves. So what they were doing is they were putting boxes of a particular product and they were lining them up one at a time at the edge of the shelf, even though the shelves are very deep. And so normally you would probably cram in maybe... 10 or 20 or 30 boxes, right? And you would just grab the one in the front row because they have all this space on the shelf. Well, instead, the shelves are completely empty and they're just lining these things up one at a time. Now, why are they doing that? Why don't they just stock the shelves normally? Well, if they did that, maybe there'd be a few feet of shelf that had products and then you'd have yards and yards of empty shelves, right? Because they'd have nothing to put there. So what they're doing is they're spreading out the small quantity of products across all of the shelf space to kind of create the false impression that the shelves aren't empty. Meanwhile, they're wasting a lot of time displaying their merchandise this way. But one that I thought was the most hysterical, I saw this video, somebody's in a, like a market or some kind of a store, and this store is displaying folding beach chairs on the shelves. And I recognize these chairs. I actually own some of these identical chairs. I bought them here in a local supermarket and we use them when we go to the beach. We unfold them and we have a chair, right? Or they're also good for a picnic or stuff like that. So for a lot of communities, these chairs are probably most used in the summertime. So probably about now, certainly in like the Midwest or the Northeast, probably people aren't loading up on beach chairs now. So maybe it's possible that this particular store just had a bunch of inventory that they didn't sell last summer because of COVID, right? Maybe people weren't going to the beach. And so they happened to have a stockpile of these beach chairs. So what they ended up doing is they displayed these beach chairs on their shelves, but they didn't display them folded up which is probably how you normally display them. I mean, that's how I remember buying mine. It was all collapsed into a little bag, so it didn't take up a lot of space on the shelf. But this market took them out of the bag and fully expanded each chair and then sat each chair on a shelf. And the person who took the video was going through aisle after aisle after aisle. And the only thing they had on every shelf were these beach chairs. Now they had various colors, but that's all it was. It was like an entire store just to buy these beach chairs. And they could have collapsed them all and they could have put all the beach chairs in one shelf. Instead, they expanded them and they filled up the entire store pretty much with the exact same chair. And probably based on where this store is, nobody even wants these beach chairs because it's the wrong season. So that's why they're all sitting on there. But meanwhile, they think they're fooling their customers into thinking that the store actually has merchandise when the only merchandise they have are beach chairs nobody wants. 
But this is more and more evidence of this stagflationary environment. And again, it's not just because of the supply bottlenecks. It's because we're not working to create the supply. We're just printing money to buy the supply that we don't have. So you can't just look at one end of the equation without understanding the other. But that's what everybody seems to be doing. They're dismissing all of the inflation being created on the demand side by the central bank, by the big budget deficits and the Federal Reserve, and just blaming it all on these supply bottlenecks in order to escape blame for the inflation and to accuse other people of creating the problems that government itself has created. And the problem is going to get much bigger because look at what's going on on the political side because the Democrats basically came out this week and admitted that they're not going to be able to raise taxes, even on corporations, even on the billionaires and the millionaires, right? The evil rich people, even the Democrats are not going to be able to raise their taxes because you got this Senator Kirsten Cinema. Everybody thought it was Joe Manchin who was going to be the big roadblock. It turns out it's Kirsten Cinema, right? She's basically came out and said, no tax increases on anybody. I don't care how rich you are, we're not raising your taxes. And she's a key vote because the Republicans or the Democrats, they only have 50 votes and then they need the vice president to break the tie. So if they get one defector, unless they're going to recruit over some Republicans to break ranks and cross party line, their tax hikes are dead on the water. And you know what? There's probably not a single Republican who's willing to cross that line to raise taxes. Because that's one thing that Republicans can generally stand united behind. They don't want to raise taxes, especially on rich people, right? So the Democrats are out of luck on tax hikes. But that means the average American is shit out of luck, really, when it comes to inflation. Because even though the Democrats are giving up on their tax hike plans, there's no way they're giving up on their spending plans. Because I'm sure Kirsten Cinema's objection to higher taxes is not also going to apply to higher spending. Because it's a lot easier for a politician to support more spending, right? Because there you're not pissing anybody off, right? Because everybody who benefits from the spending, well, they're going to vote for you. And as long as you're not raising anybody's taxes, well, you're not pissing anybody off. So you're not losing any votes. And the lobbyists don't really care as long as you're not taxing them. But that doesn't mean that we're going to get all this government for nothing, right? Whatever additional spending we get, and maybe it won't be the three and a half trillion. Maybe it'll only be two trillion. But again, whatever it is, it's going to cost two to three times more than they claim. So even if they say, hey, it's not going to be three and a half trillion, it's two trillion. Well, it's really four to six trillion. So it's going to be a lot of government spending. But if they're not going to tax the rich to pay for it, who's going to pay for it? The man in the moon? Santa Claus? No, there's no free lunch. The average American, the people who are making less than $400,000 a year, they're going to pick up the tab. How are they going to do it? Inflation. Because where is the money going to come from to pay for this laundry list of socialist programs that they're going to vote for? The Federal Reserve is going to conjure it out of thin air. The Fed's going to print money so that none of these checks bounce. And that means we're not shrinking the balance sheet. We're exploding it to new highs. And that means that we're going to reduce the value of everybody's paycheck. We're going to reduce the value of everybody's savings in order to pay for this government. More government equals less freedom 
and it equals lower real incomes. It's an inflation tax that is now going to hit middle class and poor people even harder than it would have if at least part of the bill was paid by the millionaires and the billionaires. They don't even have the guts to take away the carried interest, right? Kirsten Cinema, one of the things she said is, nope, we're not going to touch carried interest. We don't want to raise taxes at all on those hedge fund billionaires. Imagine that. You got a Democratic senator that's going to put it all on the line in order to save the billionaires from paying the same type of income tax as you know their secretary. So if the Democrats can't tax the hedge fund billionaires, they don't have the stomach to really tax anybody. They don't have the votes, but they're going to come through with the spending. And so without the pretense that the rich people are going to cover the cost, who's going to cover the cost? Again, the very people who are supposedly going to benefit from the spending, the middle class and the poor, but they're not going to understand that it's a tax because they're going to see the tax in the form of higher prices, which is one of the reasons the government likes inflation. They have so many reasons, but my dad always called inflation the government's silent partner. But one of the reasons that the government likes its silent partner is because it enables it to extract taxes from people without even knowing they've been taxed because they go and they pay higher prices and they blame the retailer. They blame capitalism or these supply shortages or whatever the scapegoat du jour happens to be, but they never blame the government because they don't understand prices are going up because the value of their money is going down. The government prints money and spends it into circulation, and now the people who get the money are competing with people who have money to buy the same supply of goods, and they bid up prices. Except now, not only are we printing money and handing it out, but the people who used to produce the goods and services are sitting at home, not producing goods and services. So it's a perfect storm of inflation. We produce less, we print more, prices are going through the roof. And of course, the failure of the Democrats to raise taxes to at least offset part of their spending means that more of the spending is going to be financed through inflation. As I teased earlier in the podcast, I'm finally getting around to talking about Bitcoin because this was the big week in Bitcoin. This was the week that we finally got the highly anticipated Bitcoin ETF. And I talked about this ETF on my podcast on Tuesday because that was the day it debuted. But they have been talking about this ETF for years, at least three or four years. It's been speculated, rumored. I mean, everybody has been waiting. And there have been several applications along the way, right? They've been teasing this ETF for years and years. And every time it looks like somebody might have been approved, right, they were able to pump up the price of Bitcoin because, okay, this ETF is coming. This is going to be huge. We're going mainstream, right? We're going prime time. We're going to open this thing up to a huge buying pool. And so everybody always bought on anticipation of all the new buying that was going to be introduced to the market through the ETF. After all, there are a lot of people that don't actually want to buy actual Bitcoin, right? I mean, and they claim, well, you know, it's so complicated. It's cumbersome. You could lose it, right? You have to talk about why Bitcoin is so bad, right? To justify why people should use an ETF. But if Bitcoin is so bad and inconvenient and risky in the first place, then what value does it have? It doesn't have any value. What's the point of sticking it in an ETF? But, you know, logic has nothing to do with Bitcoin. The idea was, hey, there are people out there that have brokerage accounts that can easily click a mouse 
and buy a Bitcoin ETF. They can't bother going over to Coinbase and setting up a wallet or whatever, but they'll buy it in their Schwab account or their Merrill account or wherever. And so this new ETF was going to open up a new pool of buyers, plus a lot of institutions. They had a problem with the custody when it came to actual Bitcoin. And so they can't buy it. But once it's an ETF, well, of course, now they're going to be buying it. Well, I have to believe that all the people who have been waiting years and years to buy a Bitcoin ETF, they just bought it, right? Whoever wanted to buy it, they did it this week, right? They had their chance, patiently waiting year after year, not buying actual Bitcoin because they were waiting for the ETF. Now they did it. Now, of course, some people can say, no, this is not the real ETF because it's Bitcoin futures, not Bitcoin itself. Who cares? I mean, the difference is not that significant for the person who's been waiting out for the ETF because it doesn't really matter that it's not your Bitcoin because even if you bought the ETF, it's still not your Bitcoin, right? You're trusting a third party. It's a derivative instrument. You don't have your own key. You're buying an ETF. You're not actually buying the Bitcoin. And so once you've decided not to buy Bitcoin, the difference between buying an ETF of Bitcoin and buying an ETF of Bitcoin futures is insignificant. I doubt there is anybody who said, damn it, I've been waiting three years to buy a Bitcoin ETF. And you know what? I'm going to keep on waiting because I'm not going to buy one that's a futures ETF. I'm going to wait around for the ETF of actual Bitcoin. I don't think there's anybody who is saying that. If you wanted to buy the ETF, you bought the one that came public on Tuesday. Bito, B-I-T-O is the symbol. Now, when it started trading on Tuesday, It opened up at $40.88, and it immediately rose. It pulled back a little bit. It actually went below the opening price. It went down to $40.07, but it closed the day positive at $41.94. Then on Wednesday, it went all the way up to $43.95. That's the high for this particular ETF, and it closed pretty close to the high of $43.28. Then a funny thing happened yesterday. It went down. Didn't make a new high. Got as high as 42.79. Actually, it gapped down. Never filled the gap. So it left an unfilled gap. And then closed at $40.83. It didn't make a new low, but it was the lowest close of the three days. And then today, it got whacked again. After opening a little higher, it opened at 41.26, it got whacked. It went all the way down to 38.90. That's the new low before closing at 39.51, down three and a quarter percent on the day. But here's what's significant. If you bought this ETF as soon as it started trading on Tuesday at $40.88, you're down because the stock closed at $39.51. So you're down about 6%. I mean, that's pretty bad for your first four days of trading, such a highly anticipated ETF. And of course, if you were one of the unlucky ones who bought the high on Tuesday, and if you still own the shares that you bought, you're down 10% in just two days. And as I said on the podcast on Tuesday, I knew we were going to get the dump to go along with this pump. And I think we're going to see it. I don't think the dump is over because Bitcoin itself is still above 60,000 as I'm recording this podcast. 
it's trading just below 61,000. So we're still pretty high. I mean, we got close to 67,000 on the week. That's kind of the new high, I think just below 67,000. But you know what Bitcoin may be putting in right now? A gigantic double top. And the fact is, if we couldn't hold the rally on the introduction of this Bitcoin ETF, what more bullish news is out there? As I said earlier, everybody who is waiting to buy the Bitcoin ETF already owns it. Well, now what? Now what are you going to anticipate? What are you going to look forward to? Nothing. You know, maybe there were a lot of people who are waiting for a Bitcoin ETF because they want to sell it. Maybe some people want to short it. I think there is a lot of downside risk now in Bitcoin because this event has been anticipated for so long Buy the rumor, sell the fact. They've been buying this rumor for years and years and years. That means there's a lot of pent-up selling on the fact. Yes, they were able to create a little bit of a rally, but I said on the podcast, don't get excited about it. The dump is coming. It always does. Bitcoin, it's like clockwork. It never fails to disappoint. Every pump is followed by a dump. The difference is that every dump is repumped. Right? And that is what all the Bitcoin fanatics are hanging their hats on. They assume that just because every prior Bitcoin dip resulted in a subsequent rally, that they can count on that happening indefinitely. Well, it's going to work until it doesn't. And at some point, Bitcoin is going to drop and it's just going to keep on dropping. And the people who buy the dip are just going to lose even more money because they're going to be averaging down into a bottomless pit and eventually they're going to be trying to catch a falling knife and there's a old wall street adage about falling knives and trying not to catch them but of course a lot of the young people who are buying bitcoin have never heard any of these old wall street adages because they haven't been around wall street because they're very young oh and by the way i made an appearance yesterday it was taped so i'm not really sure when it airs on logan paul's podcast and most of the podcast surrounded Bitcoin and ETFs because I know a lot of Logan Paul's fan base, young kids, they're into crypto, right? Because they don't know any better. They're young and they don't know enough about history and investing. They've just been taken into this fad. I mean, young people do a lot of foolish things. I mean, maybe you don't remember this or you don't know about this, but back in the 1950s, one of the things young people like to do was stuff themselves in the phone booths. Now, a lot of people today don't even know what phone booths are because they don't even have them. But, you know, go look on the internet at a picture of a phone booth, a pay phone booth. It's a little small area where Clark Kent used to walk in there and turn into Superman in a phone booth. Right now, he can't do that anymore because they don't have any phone booths. Although now he's just so super, he just kind of spins around and he magically becomes become Superman. Although, by the way, I'm just breaking off the topic, but apparently DC Comics has decided that Superman's motto, truth, justice, and the American way is no longer appropriate. So the new motto, the politically correct motto for Superman is truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. Now, of course, a better tomorrow actually means the American way. If you're talking about the American way when Superman was created, which is freedom and liberty and capitalism, those are the good things that are the American way. Now, unfortunately, today's American way is not nearly as free market oriented and as positive as it was way back when, when that character was first conceived. But still, the principle 
of those words, I think, mean something and they're important. And the fact that now we have to say, well, we're not for the American way because that's bad. It's racist. We're for a better tomorrow, which probably means more government, less freedom, more regulation, right? So now Superman is a socialist, even though he's from Kansas. Somehow it's like he landed in some communist country. But apparently this is how they have to rebrand him. I also read there's you know some stuff going on where Superman's son is now going to be bisexual, which sexual orientation was never really part of the storyline. I mean, sure, Lois Lane was his girlfriend, but I mean, it was never that big a deal. I mean, because most people have a girlfriend, so Superman had Lois Lane. Now, I guess he's going to have more interest in Jimmy Olsen, right? Who cares about Lois Lane? Or maybe it's going to be a threesome between Superman, Lois Lane, and Jimmy Olsen. But none of this stuff should even be part of the comic books, but this is what's going on. But anyway, I digress because I want to get back to what I'm actually talking about. I'm not even sure how I got on this Superman thing, but Oh, yeah, it was phone booths. So teenagers were stuffing themselves in the phone booths, right? They tried to figure out how many they can put into one phone booth. I don't know what the record was for phone booth stuffing. 20, 30 kids, I have no idea. But young people do stupid things. So phone booth stuffing is one example. Buying cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin is just another example. So I went on the Logan Paul podcast. And, you know, Logan here is out in Puerto Rico. So I'm probably going to start coming on his show more often. And some people may make fun of me for going on the show. First of all, I think he's a great guy. I mean, I had a lot of misconceptions, I mean, a lot of rumors, but when I actually met him for the first time, and I've known him now for several months, but I genuinely like the guy. I think he's very smart. He's very polite. He's a great marketer, a great promoter. He's a very bright kid. And so I really enjoyed the time that I spent on his podcast. And he's really done a lot with that podcast. I mean, he's got a bright future when it comes to this media. And what I'm hoping is that I can tap into that popularity to help educate a lot of these younger people who are getting bombarded with all this left-wing propaganda, being told how socialism is good and we need government. I want the Logan Paul audience to understand freedom and liberty and the Constitution and those principles, and to understand that the problems that they're about to experience, and there's going to be a lot of them, that government is the cause, and not to believe that government is going to solve the problems that they created, but that government is the problem, as Ronald Reagan used to say, and the solution is freedom. It's capitalism. For all the criticism constantly leveled on capitalism and the free market by the left, That is the only solution we have to these problems. So if there's going to be any light at the end of this tunnel, capitalism and freedom represent that light. And so I want to make sure that the younger people understand this. And so hopefully with the help of Logan Paul, I can bring this message to an even younger demographic and hopefully they can help spread it throughout the country and throughout the world. (music) 